Let me invite you to open your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the racks on the, by your knees uh, in front of you. Uh, and so you're welcome to have that. And if you actually don't even just have one, as in you just didn't bring it, feel free to take that with you. Um, we would be delighted for you to, to have that as, as our gift. We are continuing in our study of the Lord's Prayer. We took a week off because we took a week off. Uh, nobody was here, and I felt rather conspicuous um, just preaching by myself. So, um, but it's part of our larger study that we have of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at that for several months. We did an overview through, and then only took one week looking at this important and beautiful prayer. Uh, but with the intention of realizing uh, the cause of its importance, that we would come back to it and look at it more in detail. And I don't know whether you've ever considered the flow of the Lord's Prayer or not, but understanding the flow or recognizing the flow of the Lord's Prayer changes the way that we look at a lot of things, not only this prayer, but the way we relate to God. You see, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the very first petition, which is really the most important thing, is that we pray God's name would be hallowed. In other words, that God would be recognized as being God. He would be treated as God deserves to be treated. We would know that he's holy, and we would respond and treat him accordingly. Now, even if we understand the concept, the practical question is, how does that happen? And we find the answer to that in the next petitions. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as in heaven. In other words, God's name is hallowed, the kingdom of God comes, and when the kingdom of God comes, the king, God's will is done on earth just as it is in heaven. That means that God is treated as God. He's recognized as being holy, and he's responded to accordingly, and that's how God is, is hallowed. But then from there, we see the effect of God's name being hallowed, the effect of the kingdom of God coming to earth, the effect of God's will being done on earth. And we see that there is forgiveness, forgiveness of sin. And there's reconciliation between us and God and between us and us, and that leads to peace. We see deliverance from evil, not only the evil that we see that is very real in the world around us, but the evil that is within us that we are so blind to, we become delivered from that as well. It no longer has effect upon us, and we are able to respond to God and to one another in a way that honors God and does his will and blesses everyone else. We see that when God's will is done on earth, when God is treated as God, all of our needs are provided for by our God who the scripture calls our Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. That brings us to our text this morning. We'll be looking this morning at verse 11, a very simple verse, but as we've been doing, the context and for the beauty, we'll be reading all of the prayers. So beginning our reading in Matthew 6, verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we do pray to you even now that we would honor you as we lend our ears to you. We pray that you would speak to us by this word, and not the words on the page only not even primarily, but your spirit who has inspired these words, may he be at work within all who are here, that we would hear, that we would be able to understand, and that it would shape our hearts 
and therefore our lives. May you use this word and the power of the Spirit in this time that we give to you to conform us more like Christ. And may we honor you by listening for what you would say, committing ourselves to your word. This is not only our act of worship in ceremony, but our spiritual act of worship in life. Bless us now that you may shape us and that we may be blessed, that we may live to your glory and praise. We pray this in Christ, the Word incarnated. Amen. Give us this day our daily bread. Seems as simple as it could possibly be, right? I mean, there's only seven words here. Six of them only have one syllable. The complex word only has two syllables. None of them are archaic words. And so we might look at this petition and think, okay, some of the other ones, they have words we don't necessarily understand. We recognize there's some complexities. We may not know all that's involved. So it's possible there might be some misunderstanding on the other ones, but not this one, right? I mean, it's as simple as could possibly be. Well, if we think that way, then we may be in somewhat for somewhat of a surprise. Because it's that one multi-syllable word that brings a complexity to this particular passage. And yet when we understand it with that complexity, we recognize there's a beauty and a power beyond what we may initially think. It's not that this text doesn't mean what you think it means. It is clearly our going to God and praying to God, who is our provider, to provide for our needs. But there's even more there. That one simple word that makes it complex is somewhat unique. If you were to look in all of ancient Greek, all of the literature, whether it's Homer or Plato, whoever, you will not find that word anywhere. It doesn't exist. It has yet to be found. Not only does a word not exist, but the concept doesn't exist. It is revolutionary in Jesus' teaching. Now, when I said that it doesn't exist anywhere in ancient Greek literature, it has been found in ancient Greek, not in anything that's literature, but there was a papyrus that was found some time ago, and on the papyrus, the word and the concept uh, that we have uh, before us, that for those who are interested in, in the Greek, it's epo, uh, epiousion, which I'm sure you'll work into a conversation sometime this week. And that word is found there, and it does translate in terms of our, our daily bread, but it wasn't literature. It was on, it's kind of like a fragment of somebody's, looks like a grocery list somebody was writing out. I don't know whether they were writing out something else too, that, you know, uh, or who they were writing to. The fragment of that papyrus is there, and scholars were studying that, and then they lost the papyrus too, so they don't even have that anymore. They just have the notes of the people who had seen it. The scholars that have seen it, and the scholars who are aware of it, and working on the notes of those who had it in their hands, have come to at least somewhat of an agreement, and even if they disagree in their agreement. They said that this word, this concept, can only have one of two possible meanings. The word could mean, daily could mean today. Give us today what we need for today. And others say, well, that may be a legitimate interpretation, but they're more convinced that what it means is give us today what we need for tomorrow. And people are actually debating this as if it makes a whole lot of difference. Um, scholars are, are, are divided, but they know that it has to be one of those two meanings. Now, I don't have their intellectual capacity. And so I look at it and say, 
I don't really care. Um, what, I mean, I, I like the concept, but I don't care whether God gives me what I need for today or if God gives me what I need for tomorrow and gives it to me today. I mean, living my life, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time worrying and coming down with a position. So you are free. This is the first point of freedom. You're free to choose either of those definitions as we are looking at this particular text. But even with that disagreement, even that illumination, as we look at this passage with either of those understandings, this simple phrase does teach us some beautifully important things about the nature of our God and about the expectations that our God has for his church. We begin with the whole idea of what this teaches us about the nature of God. As we look at this phrase, whether in simplicity or its complexity, we're reminded that God, who is the creator of all things, is the one who governs the entirety of the universe. He cares for us. And he doesn't only care for our spiritual lives, he cares about every aspect of our lives. Now, for many of us, that's just a, a reminder of something that we, we know, we've heard, and we've believed for a long time. For others, that's news. And for still others, even if we've heard it, it's news that we need to take into consideration. Because if you are like me, like many that I encounter, we may say that we know that God cares for all of our lives, but we live as if God is only primarily concerned about our spiritual and our moral lives. As if God has given us certain standards and directions and instructions, and he's saved us from ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ, and now is helping us to grow to be more like Christ, all of which are, are spiritual dimensions. And he's created a beautiful world with an abundance of resources, and it just somehow seems beneath God to think that he should be worried about whether I eat or drink. I mean, he's provided everything. And so many of us, whether we are believers or whether we are on a journey to figure out what we believe, we, we live as if God is mostly concerned about our spiritual lives. By this instruction that Jesus gives to us, he is reminding us that God is holistic. and He cares about you in every single dimension. He is actively involved, and he is concerned, and he cares for this. We are reminded that he is our father who does provide for our needs. And this is an invitation to relate to him with the hope and the expectation that he will meet the implied promise. Because for Jesus to tell us to pray, our father, give us this day our daily bread, without an implication that we would actually receive what we need, would just be cruel. Go ahead and ask. It, 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 it's the kind of thing you would see an obnoxious somebody Go ahead and ask. Something I might have done to my little sister when I was younger. Go ahead and ask, knowing that you're not going to get what you want, and then sitting back and laughing. That's not our God, and that's not Jesus Christ. The living and true God cares about everything in your life. And the phrase here, daily bread, and particularly as we just look at the, the, the word bread, we need to have an understanding. What's the implication of that? And how does it help us understand God? Because we need to look at this and realize that the word bread here means more than just the stuff that you have so you can make some sandwiches. 
Theologian Frederick Dale Bruner says this petition is a politico-economic petition. In other words, it's more than just spiritual. And he's building off of what Luther had taught. Because Luther taught us that when we pray for bread, we are actually praying at the same time for everything necessary for the preservation of our life. Like food and a healthy body and good weather, which is necessary for the crops to grow, that give us the ingredients that we need for the bread. For house and home, for wife or for husband, for a good government, for peace. And that God would preserve us from all sorts of calamities, sickness, pestilence, hard times, war, revolution, and the likes. And as Luther is saying, look, these things, this is, a, this is a very holistic prayer in the whole idea of bread. Bread rarely just manifests itself. And so therefore, as we are praying for bread, we are praying for everything that goes into providing that bread. And it, and it makes only sense because bread costs money. Money requires work. Work requires labor opportunities. Labor opportunities generally depend on a healthy and a, a uh, good government. All of those things are necessary, even in the simple idea of providing for that which is necessary. And so when we are praying this prayer, praying for our daily bread, it is shorthand for praying for all the dimensions that affect our lives, for God to be at work in them and through them that our needs would be met. But at the same time, we don't want to over, only over-emphasize uh, uh, the, the bread. We also need to recognize there's some simplicity in this as well. The bread here is, is representative of our, our basic needs. We're not here asked to pray for cake. We're free and to like cake and enjoy cake when it's provided. And there are plenty of words that could have been used to indicate that. But what Jesus here is inviting us to do is to pray for our basic needs, not necessarily for broad, grandiose, extravagant things. Now, we live in a culture that has been blessed beyond our basic needs. And the church of Jesus Christ should understand that it's God who provides for our daily needs. And yet, for whatever reason, in our own greed, we tend to go beyond what Jesus is inviting us to pray. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago when I was reading in the newspaper of two televangelists who apparently actually were on TV having a discussion about why it is necessary that their churches provide for them private jets. And one of them, this was a serious, I looked to see if this came out of, out of the onion, but this was not. <laughs> because one of them actually said, see, flying on the private jets enables us to avoid demons. That apparently you can't if you drive a fly coach on a charter flight. I, I, it just is, is amazing. And that extravagance just kind of struck me as these leaders were, were so far beyond praying for what they needed. They were praying for the luxury in a way that believers and unbelievers alike pretty much recognize is inappropriate. So as I was preparing for this, one of the things I took pride in and, and I was delighted in, and I can report to you that if you weren't at our meeting a couple of weeks ago, for the fourth year in a row, there is no line item for a jet plane for either me or for camper. <laughs> camper wanted one. <laughs> we had to tell him no. 
And that's a cheap shot because Camper's not here. He's out of <laughs> he's out of town, and he had to fly coach. But anyway, um, and so, but uh, I don't know where the line is, but we know when we've crossed it. And it's not that we shouldn't hope for an abundance, and that we are not allowed to pray. But we need to recognize that Jesus' focus here for us is for our needs. And when we see him at work, we tend to rejoice and to rest in him. But it does beg the question then, what amount of daily bread are we supposed to pray for? I mean, how much are we supposed to ask God to give us? And the implication of the words here that Jesus is giving us is that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying for the amount sufficient for today. So we are praying that God would meet whatever our needs are that's sufficient for this moment. And we see that consistent with the teachings of Scripture in the Old Testament. Israel, as they were wandering in the wilderness, dependent upon God, were instructed to continue to pray for God and trust for God to provide their daily bread in, in the manna. And God gave very specific instructions to them as that they, weren't, they were free to collect as much manna as they wanted but only as much as they would need and eat in a particular day. And that if anybody was to go out and collect more than they would consume in a day, more than their household would consume in a day, they would find that their manna would, the next morning when they stored it up, would have rotted and have maggots and other things that would make it somewhat unappetizing. The only exception for that is on the day before the Sabbath, they were allowed to collect enough for the two days so that they didn't have to labor on the Sabbath. And so God was saying to them, here's how you should pray. Pray for your daily bread and don't seek excess. I think we see also another example in the scripture. A man named Agur in the book of Proverbs offers a beautiful prayer. In Proverbs 30, listen to what Agur says to us. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me and give me neither poverty nor riches but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. A beautiful and simple prayer. And it's important to recognize that Edgar doesn't ask for poverty. That it's not something that God's people are necessarily supposed to be living in. Some choose it. But in that prayer, and in the prayer that we're considering this morning, we're not asking for poverty. We're asking for God to meet our needs, the needs that are sufficient for today. And God is not being stingy here. It's just an issue that he knows our hearts. Consider what happened to Israel when they had an abundance. They tended to become self-reliant. In their prosperity, they stopped praying. Essentially, they stopped attending church regularly. And then what they would offer to God was not their first fruits, but the leftovers, the stuff that they didn't want. Extra time, if they had extra time, if they had spare change, they would offer that to God. Tangible evidence that God was not first in their life, but just an appendage to their life. And God is aware that that is a temptation for all of us when we find that we have too much. Now, I need to be very clear here because for some reason we seem to go on two poles in terms of the idea of wealth. We have this idea that wealth itself is a validation that we are walking with God, 
Or we have the idea that wealth itself is something that is inherently evil. And the Scripture teaches neither of those. The only thing that Scripture teaches is consistent with what Agar was praying, and that many of us at times have experienced, is that when we have excess, we don't feel the need to depend on God. And when we are not depending on God, it easily desensitizes us to what God is doing in our lives. And this is true for many of us. It, from time to time, like I'm sure many of you do, I think how nice it would be to win the lottery. Now, I know that the statistics of winning the lottery are really astronomical, and I would suspect that they would be even worse for me because I've never bought a ticket. Um, don't plan to. So realizing that's just kind of foolish thought, then I start wondering if I have any long-lost relatives that I've never met and I wouldn't miss that would leave me millions of dollars. Now, part of my dreaming is the generosity I could do with that, the investment in global mission, the meeting of the needs of the people who are in poverty. Yeah, I might get a little Austin Healy to drive around every once in a while, too, but that's a whole other issue. But as I think about it further, one of the things that comes to me is even in my dreaming, I'm realizing what is motivating some of this is that I would know that my needs will be met, and I don't have to depend on God moment by moment. That if I had that in the bank, I would know that my family was going to eat, my kids' college would be paid for, and that when the time comes, I would be able to retire in a manner in which I keep telling Carolyn I deserve and to, should be living in a, in a, because I've come accustomed to. And there's nothing wrong with any of the desires that I have. But at the root of those is I would rather depend on what I have than depend on God moment by moment. And that is the danger that wealth brings to us. It is not that it is evil. It just can desensitize us to what God is doing for us. And when we see how God responded to Israel, when they responded to him in their wealth, we see that God would take away from them the blessing, the things that he had blessed them with. And it wasn't because he was trying to get back at them, and it wasn't because he was trying to punish them, but because he wanted to restore them to the place where they would find the greatest satisfaction and the real joy, which is only found in a day-by-day -day dependent relationship with God, because as we see him meeting our needs, then we rejoice in him, we depend on him, and we find the only real assurance of hope, and that comes in the person of God. And so God was trying to bring his people back to them. So we ask the question, so how much should we be praying for? I think Agur offers wise words. Because he says, not too little and not too much whatever God sees as being right. When we consider this passage, we also need to realize another aspect of what God. God is concerned about our lives in every dimension. And while he's not more concerned about our spiritual lives than he is about our, our, our physical lives, we also have to consider that Jesus, in his first temptation, taught us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes pouring out of the mouth of God. And so it's appropriate for us to recognize that there is a dimension of this prayer, praying for our daily bread, that is not only for that which we are going to eat, but that which would feed our soul, the word of God and the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the bread by which we actually live. It is the power of salvation. It is the power of life. But God in this petition is inviting us to trust, to believe, to relate, and to enjoy him 
as we see him meeting our needs and even giving in abundance to us. We learn a lot about our God in these simple words. But we also learn about God's expectations for his church. Because in these words, we see something of the communal nature for which God has created us. I mean, note the key words. There's a shift that takes place at this part of the Lord's Prayer. Up to this point, all of the prayers have been for your glory, for you. And now we have these inclusive words, us and our, that permeate the rest of the prayer. Forgive us our sin as we forgive others. Deliver us from evil. Give to us our daily bread. These words can be seen either as inclusive. In other words, what I mean is when you have just a group of people who may have no connection to one another, who all kind of want the same thing, and they're asking, demanding. And so, you know, I may not know Ben, but I know that we're at some event, we want the same thing, we're asking, and so we would use the word us, we want something even though we're disconnected. And that's not a bad thing. But God here has something even more important than a the bunch of people having the same needs. And we know it by the fact that this prayer begins with our Father. So we would need to read this, our Father, give to us this day our daily bread. He, the only ones that have a right to call God Father are those who the Father has given to Jesus Christ, who have trusted in Christ, have been made children of God by faith in Christ, giving his life and rising again from the dead. And so this is not a gathering of individuals with common needs. This is a collection. This is one, a group that is one. That Jesus later prays, Lord, may they be one as you and I are one. This is communal, not just inclusive. And what Jesus is instructing us to pray here, he shows us that he's expecting us to pray when we pray for our own needs, that we also are praying for the needs of one another. It's not enough for me to be praying that my my needs would be met so that I can meet my family's needs. Because of the communal nature of the expectation that's implicit in this prayer, I need to be praying for your needs to be met. For believers everywhere needs to be met. As one writer said at one time, I think profoundly true and yet painfully true, is no Christian can be contented to have too much while others have too little. And yet we have been shaped by our culture as a collection of rugged individualists. And Jesus is confronting that in this prayer and saying, not if you belong to me. You are part of my family. You are part of my body. You are your brother's keepers. You are responsible for the people who are around us. And so we need to recognize that if God is meeting my daily needs, your daily needs, if he's prospering us, the prosperity is not simply to be used that we would store up more for ourselves but it's also to be used to meet the needs of others. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, that's inclusive, is that we want to be provided for to meet our needs, and, but one of the requirements of being part of the body is that your needs 
become my responsibility. My needs become your responsibility. And the way God works is by giving abundance to some, even while others are lacking. It seems unfair, and yet there's a beauty in this. Because when we do what God wants, when God's will is being done in his church, much less in the world, we are reminded constantly of the connection that we have. We are responsible for one another. And in our abundance, we provide for our brothers who are in need. Randy Alcorn, a tremendous writer in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, says something that's somewhat provocative. In my first reading of it, I thought, this somehow doesn't smell right. But as I thought about it a little bit more, I recognized the beauty of it. If I try to make only enough money for my family's immediate needs, it may violate Scripture. Even though earning just enough to meet the needs of my family may seem non-materialistic, it's actually selfish when I could earn enough to care for others as well. And the reason that I think that that's pertinent is, in this room, for the most part, we are amazingly blessed. Almost everybody, if not everybody, is well above average in intelligence. I'll borrow from Garrison Keillor, better than average looking. Um, has opportunities and a relative wealth. Except for college students, they're poor. But, uh, and anybody getting ready to go on the mission field. But anyway, that, that, other than those, that's uh, and it only makes sense. And in his prayers, we think about the fullness of what Jesus is saying. Look, praying for our, what we need, but if what part of what I need and that God provides for me is so that I can meet the need of somebody else who either doesn't have the opportunity or the ability to meet their need, then I need to realize that I can pray for opportunity to work. I can accumulate not just to hoard, but to give. With the vision that nobody who belongs to the household of God would be in need. There would be nobody without shelter and there would be nobody without food. That we would meet those needs. And I think that's clearly implicit in what Jesus is saying. Then I'm wondering about how far does that extend? I mean, we're told to do good to all, but especially to those who have the household of faith. And so that started me thinking, okay, well, he's into something here, and that makes sense. But then other words of Jesus began to gnaw at me. Remembering what Jesus said in John 10, I have other sheep that are not yet of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is looking forward and saying there's a day that all who belong to him are going to be his one flock and he's going to be that one shepherd. And he's telling those of us who are already part of his flock, who've made the profession of faith and part of his church, that reminding us we are his. But he also says, but there are people out there who are not yet part of a flock, and yet they still belong to Jesus. Now, if I have responsibility to meet the needs of all who belong to Jesus, then I have responsibility to some who I yet, yet don't show the evidence. And so that seems to imply that some of our excess, some of our ability, should also be distributed to anyone who is in need, recognizing that among those are people whom Jesus is calling to himself. They are our brothers and sisters, they just haven't been born again yet. And we have a responsibility 
And while there certainly are social issues that we need to be wise about, the worst thing that we can do by being gracious to give to people who either do not belong to God and may never belong to God if they get some of the spillage over is we reflect the graciousness of our God who pours down rain and the sun upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We were the beneficiaries before we came into the household of God. We now are his vessels to benefit others so that when people look at our God, they not only know that he blesses those who love him, but he cares for those who hate him. That's our call. And that's our prayer. And that's our responsibility. When we look at this very simple prayer, very simple words, it is not less than what it looks like on its surface. But this one little phrase confronts our sense of self-sufficiency and our independency. And it reminds us to give up trust in ourselves, in our resources, in our opportunities, in our government, in our church, in one another, in anything in all creation and turns our attention to put our trust in the one true God alone. But when we do that, when we are sensitive to that, we find a joy we can't buy anywhere, no matter how much we store, because we see God providing. Not only are our needs met, but we know that the creator of all things, the one who possesses and governs all things, he knows our need, and he gives to our need. He provides for our need because he loves us. And if that doesn't bring us joy and hope, then we need to look at our hearts in other ways. But it does to say, God loves you, and our Jehovah Jireh will provide all of your needs beyond your wildest imagination. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we do pray to you that you would give us our daily bread so that we would be reminded that you are the source of everything good. To you be all praise and glory.